0: So last Sunday was a normal Sunday for me, but for some of you, it was Super Bowl Sunday. I confess I did not watch the Super Bowl, but I did keep up with it so I could send texts to Cody to harass him about the Chiefs. Uh, And for quite a while, I had a lot of fun doing that till the very end. One of the controversies from the Super Bowl, which you know there's always things, you... I kind of imagine a lot of the things that are controversial at the Super Bowl are done intentionally to be controversial in order to get more attention and more of that. But one of the controversies this year, in a year where after years of tons of politically driven advertisements were put on and things like that, it it seems like from what I've heard and from the ads I was able to see, that was less of a feature this year. And so a lot more attention was given to one particular ad. And if you're a Christian, uh, you've, you may have heard of this ad, which is the ad that the He Gets Us campaign put on. And if you're watching the Super Bowl, maybe you saw it then. It's actually not a new thing. Last year, there were several ads that this campaign put on, so it's not an entirely new thing. Um, they've put on ads throughout the years at different uh, major events. And this one was, they had a 60-second ad which, if you're going to make an ad to try to speak to millions of people watching something and hope to reach them all with the same message, a good luck. But they had 60 seconds to do this, and their emphasis was that he, as in Jesus, gets us. He understands us. He he understands our problems and our tribulations and whatever it may be. Now, I don't want to spend just a ton of time analyzing an advertisement. I have actually no interest in doing that. But what I can say is this, there was a lot of outrage because the ad was 60 seconds of portraying pictures, one by one, of different people washing the feet of another person. And it was typically people you would not expect. So it was someone who may have looked like a conservative Christian, perhaps, washing the feet of a woman outside of a family planning center or an abortion clinic. Uh, It would be the feet of two teenage girls washing each other's feet, things like like that, picture of that, different things like this. And the outrage was that at the end it said, he didn't teach us hate, he washed feet. And the outrage was like, well, what's that really mean? Like, okay, you, you put these images up there, but we really didn't learn a whole lot about Jesus. Of course, this ad in 60 seconds, the point was mostly to drive you to their website so that you could possibly learn more and things like that. I want to push back kind of on both sides of this thing because some were outraged that it didn't emphasize certain things about Jesus and some were outraged that people were outraged because it's just Jesus washing feet. And don't you know that Jesus washed even Judas's feet, the one who would betray him? What we saw in this ad is on the one hand a picture of Jesus who is compassionate and caring for everyone. But what was not clear in the ad which is part of where the outrage, I think, comes from, is that it wasn't clear who Jesus is. Is he just some guy who washes feet? Like, that's kind of an odd thing, especially in 21st century America. Or, is he the king of the world? Is he God in the flesh? You don't learn those things. And this morning, I want to put those two pictures together and show that by the very fact that Jesus is the God in flesh, that he is the king of the world that we actually see compassion flowing from him. We see justice, true justice being brought, although it may not always look like the way the world would bring justice. To summarize it, I think that if we're going to have a world that is flourishing, if, if the earth is going to flourish, if it's going to prosper, if it's going to go well, if it's going to be a place of peace, for the earth to flourish, we need... An earthly king who's from heaven. That is, we need an earthly king, a human king, but one who is ultimately from heaven. And so we look at Psalm 72 to look at this truth this morning. Now, to begin, we need a new king. We need a new king for the earth to flourish. We see at the very beginning of the psalm, even arguably, arguably at the beginning of verse 1 or right before verse 1, the superscription, Of Solomon. You may have seen these when you look through the Psalms. It might say of David or of Solomon or to the choir master or whatever it might be. And these are to give some background and context for this psalm. This one says of Solomon. Now, the problem is we don't know what of means. And you're thinking, what? We don't know what of means. Of course we do. Okay. But we don't know whether it means Solomon wrote it or whether it's for Solomon, as if it was written for him. We don't know. And when we look at verse 20, it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That last verse really is an addition to this psalm to conclude not only it, but also all the psalms that came before it. 1 through 72. These are psalms that were primarily, not all of them, but primarily from David and primarily throughout his life. And we think most of them that say of David were written by him, not for him. But in Solomon, we don't know. So this might be a psalm that David wrote as a prayer for his son who was becoming king, that he would be a new king that that leads in a certain way, or it might be that this is a psalm written by Solomon for a future king that he can't even imagine yet. But either way, what do we need? A new king. Now what's interesting about this psalm is it's considered by many a messianic psalm. In fact, there were were rabbinic texts in the Jewish uh, literature that added to the first verse, give the king, it added the Messiah. They were seeing it as a messianic psalm. Now, what's interesting is it's not quoted in the New Testament. Many of the psalms we consider messianic about the Messiah, that is, about the Christ, about Jesus, are quoted in the New Testament. This one isn't. Yet, it's been immortalized, not just by the literature of the jewish people and their teachers and their their leaders but it was immortalized by the likes of james montgomery or isaac watts in hymns like hail to the lord's anointed or jesus shall reign at the beginning of hail to the lord's anointed goes like this i'm not going to sing it okay i don't think y'all know it so i'm not going to try to lead it either Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. That's how it starts. And that's exactly what we need. If we're going to have an earth that is flourishing, if we are to flourish as people in this world, what we need is a new king, not David, not great David, but great David's greater son. We need a new king That is, we need Jesus Christ. We need great David's greater son. So let's look at this prayer, this psalm, and see what this new king looks like. The first thing we're going to see in verses 1 through 11 is that he is a peacemaking king. That he is a king who brings peace. And we need a peacemaking king. It starts, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush. The oppressor. This is so important to get. To get. I, I can't imagine today, may, maybe in times past, but I'm actually not convinced of that. I can't imagine a political or military leader who is truly in it for completely altruistic purposes. In other words, I don't know a leader who's truly in it not for themselves fundamentally. Like, even the great leaders that we can point to, there was obviously, in my opinion, pride, and personal ambition that led them there. In fact, loving and caring for the people is not something that comes naturally. And so when we look at this world and we see kings or presidents or prime ministers or whatever they might be, we don't really see people who aren't fundamentally in it for themselves. That's a really hard thing to imagine. And listen, not to get political, but I can say this to both parties, can you imagine an election we're coming up on where there's two people who are less in it for themselves? And I can say this because it's both sides. <laughs> I don't know that anyone disagrees that, that, that there is fundamentally something, and that doesn't mean you don't agree with their policies or you would hope one wins over the other, but it's just, they're in it for themselves. This isn't surprising to us. None of you are sitting there going, wait, what, am I, wait, what are you talking about? Of course they're in it for me, I personally met that. No one's thinking that. Everyone's sitting here going, of course they're in it for themselves. Now, they might also care for other people. We can look at the history. I'm sure we've had presidents. I'm sure we've had kings in the past who weren't in it only for themselves. But fundamentally, were they in it for themselves? Yes, of course. That's not true with Jesus. Sin and and the pride of sin will always lead us to be partially in it for ourselves. Whatever we do, you don't have to want to be president or a king to th- have that be true of you. There are many of good things you can look at your life, and you know you did. And if you're being honest, it wasn't just because you were completely helping others. There's a part of you that wanted that for yourself. That is not how it is with Jesus. He completely, completely and utterly is concerned for us. Yes, he wants to bring his own name, Glory, but in glorifying God, it is better for us. We were created to glorify him, so it's better that we do. Fundamentally, what do we need? We need a king who came, not to be served, but to serve. You see this in Mark ten forty five. That's exactly what Jesus said he came to do. And when we look at his life, it makes sense. At no point do we see Jesus trying to be served by others. He is always the one serving in his life and in his death. We need a peacemaking king, but one who does it by serving others. Listen to this. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. This is not something that you do for your own benefit. We had the Larson's hosted last night, Uh, Harvey and Linda Phillips, which some of you know. They've come back to the States. And they've had a ministry overseas. And they just shared last night about the the state of things in China. Listen, it's not better over there. Which again, all of you are saying, well, of course not. (laughs) They have leaders too. Their leaders aren't in it for them. And it's very clear to them. They know that. That's how it is In any human kingdom of human origin, you're going to have people in it for themselves who are not defending the cause of the poor, who are not helping the needy or their children. But here we have Jesus. And with no other motivation than pure love, Jesus came to serve others. But he also brings with him peace, shalom, wisdom. In verse 5, it says, May they fear you while the sun endures. And in case you're not reading it on the page, S-U-N, sun, okay? The one in the sky. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, And peace abound till the moon be no more. What does his kingdom look like? It's one where the righteous flourish and peace abounds. It is a kingdom of shalom. If you see in verse, if we go back to verse 3, it says, Let the mountains bear prosperity. That word there is shalom, meaning well-being. It's not just financial. It's about the whole of life. This is the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings. This is the kind of kingdom we long for, that we hope for, that we pray for. It is a kingdom of peace among all, but especially the flourishing of the righteous. What is peace? Peace is not simply everyone choosing to ignore each other and get along. Biblically, peace brings about the idea that all things are being made right. There's actually a sense of justice that comes along with peace. And this king is given justice by God, as it says in verse 1. He is given righteousness. Peace is brought about by the righteous, those who are with Christ and on his side, getting their just reward. And it is also... Where the wicked, those who fight and flee and rebel against God, who love their sin, those things that go against God and his word, more than Jesus, it is a place where the wicked get their just compensation. As Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. They get that wage. They earn it. With all of their sin, they worked for it and they got it. And so we see... That justice and peace abound in a world that has a just king who is righteous. And that's a world that cannot simply be accomplished in the way that we see it being done all the time. Look, in verse 4, it says he'll defend the cause of the poor, he gives deliverance to the children of the needy, and what? He crushes the oppressor. This is something that that advertisement just does not get for you, does it? Yeah, he'll wash your feet, but it leaves out the part where he crushes the oppressor. What does he do with his feet? Well, when we read Genesis 3.15, what is he going to do? He is going to crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will, will strike his heel. We get the picture of Jesus conquering the oppressor, conquering the accuser, conquering Satan, sin, and death on the cross, but he does it by looking like a loser. He does it by dying. He does it by being crucified by his enemies. Oh, and certainly the devil thought he won. The problem is when you crush the serpent and you are Christ, you are not just a man who dies, but you are a God who cannot. And he was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and in that defeats death itself. He is a king who brings peace and shalom because he conquers the oppressor. He conquers the evil one. And yes, he conquers our own sins and pays the penalty for them. And because of that, all those who fear him will prosper. In verse 5, it talks about, it says, may they fear you. Speaking of the people of this king, may they fear you. As we know from Proverbs nine ten, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do we live in this world? Well, it's not by a list of rules. Yeah, we have commands we need to follow. We have duties that we need to fulfill. But it's by being wise. And how do we get that wisdom? By being gods. By being those who fear him, who respect the fact that if we are his oppressor, if we are his enemy, we will be crushed. But if we fear him, if we follow him, if we have faith in him, in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, we don't need to fear being crushed. We do not need to fear that. Instead, we can have full assurance that we are his, and when his kingdom fully and finally comes, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, it will be one where we flourish Not because we are righteous based on our good deeds and our kind words, but we are righteous on account of Christ who died in our place. And we will flourish. It's amazing. It's amazing because this king does not just bring peace and well-being to his people, but to all creation. Look at this in verse 3. Let the mountains bear prosperity or well-being for the people and the hills in righteousness. It talks about the sun and the moon, that he is like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Having a righteous king, a truly righteous king, allows not only the people, the citizens, to prosper, but the whole creation around them to prosper. There's, a, there's much more in the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness than we can even imagine. So much more flourishing and blessing and goodness. I get the picture uh, that C.S. Lewis paints in one of his novels, that it's almost like the world we live in is a shadow land. It's just a shadow of what it should be. Because everything was created and it was good. In fact, at the end of creation, God said it was very good. But because it has been marred and darkened and scarred by our sin and rebellion, it's almost like all the colors are a little less bright. All the food tastes a little bit worse. Everything about this world isn't what it should be. Yet, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, brings heaven to earth, everything will be different our bodies will be made new you got knee replacements coming up you got sore shoulders you got a heavy burden whatever it may be that will be healed not only that but as c.s lewis paints the picture it may just be that the colors look a little bit brighter which i mean if you have vision problems like i do is a given okay I remember when I was a kid, I didn't have glasses, I really needed them, and I put on my friend's glasses, and it was like I was seeing in high definition all of a sudden. In fact, if I take off my glasses, I can't even make out the faces on the front row, even though I know exactly who they are. It'll be like we're putting on new glasses. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos of people who are colorblind, who receive those glasses they can put on where they can actually see some color, there is a sense in which the world to come is far greater than we could ever imagine or hope for. And the prosperity there, the well-being there, the peace there is far more than we could ever imagine. He's also a king, though. That's, this is interesting to me. Look at verse 8. He is a king who does what Adam could not do and truly has dominion over the whole earth. It says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. You think of Revelation 19.16 in which it says, that his name was king of kings and lord of lords. That's who this righteous king is. That's who this new king is. That is who this peacemaking king is. That is who Jesus Christ is, king of kings. That all the leaders of the earth, in seeing this king come and fall down before him, it says that they serve him in verse 11. But that ser- word serve is also used to mean worship. Worship. It's a kind of service that is connected to our worship. They come to this king and fall down before him. Why? Because he is the king of kings. He's not a king they can ignore. Now, there are many kings in this world, many presidents, prime ministers, leaders in this world, whatever their title may be, who would love to gather with all the other leaders of the world and have them fall down before them. But that's exactly exactly what they will never be able to achieve. But that's exactly what Christ can do. That's exactly what Christ deserves. And he does it. Not through force. Look, they come to him. They cannot stay away. He brings peace. Not just through all the good he does. He brings peace because every king has to fall down before him. The kings do not go out to war against each other. They come to worship him. That's the picture we get. We also need a king who is a redemptive king. In verses 12 through 14, this peacemaking king has to do it a certain way. What does he do? He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Look at this. He delivers, he saves, and he redeems. And who are these people? Well, it may be the needy that they have physical need. It may be the poor in that they have no money. But what do we need more than to be united to our Creator? What are we poorer in than our spirit? What, what do we have more need of to be freed from oppression and violence? If you look at our lives today, you might be thinking, I don't know about this because I'm not needy. I'm not poor. As Mike and Michelle were saying in Kenya, poverty is a whole different thing there than what you experience here. And you think, I don't know that I'm really oppressed. But it is exactly in our need to be freed from sin, which is oppressing us and enslaving us. It is exactly in that need that we need deliverance. It is exactly in the fact that we are poor in spirit that we need a Savior. And we, yes, need redemption. It says... Precious is their blood, the poor, the needy, the oppressed, in his sight. The blood of those who need God is so precious in the sight of Jesus that he gave his most precious blood to free them from oppression. He took on oppression and violence himself in order to save the needy in order to deliver the poor. So precious in the sight of Jesus was your blood and mine that he gave of his most precious blood for us. Hanging on a cross, he bled and died such that when we take the Lord's Supper, which he instituted, when we take that meal, we remember his body That was broken for us. And his blood that was shed for our sins and for the sins of many. In that meal we remember the gospel. We remember that this isn't, God didn't just declare us saved. But he came and experienced evil. He came and experienced in a sense hell itself for us. That we may not have to. That by repenting and trusting in him, we can be made free. We can be made new. And in order to bring about this redemption, we needed a divine king. Not just one of this world, but one who is divine. Looking at verse 15, it says, Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. It starts that long may he live. Now there's a king in, in England right now in the United Kingdom. They have a king again, not a queen, and they say of him, "Long live the king." But they all know something, don't they? They may say, "Long live the king," but it's not long forever. Forever live the king. It's it's long live the king. They know he's going to die someday. And for as long as his mother lived, uh, maybe sooner than she was right. They say, long live the king, but they know there's an end. When we say, long may he live, we see in verse 17, may his name endure forever. He is eternal, he is everlasting, and of his kingdom and reign there will be no end. It will continue, and it will continue, and it will continue, and when he comes and establishes his kingdom fully and finally as we hope for and as we long for and as we know is coming, There will be no end to that kingdom. There will be no end to Jesus being king. It will go on and on and on and on. You can't even imagine. The oldest people in this room can't even imagine how long Christ will reign here on earth as it is in heaven. It's also a kingdom where the king is a blessing and is blessed. We see that it's in verse, I want to make sure I get the right verse here, guys. In verse 16, may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. In verse 17, may people be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Now They bless him, this king, not because they're trying to get something out of him, but because he has already blessed them. Just by virtue of ruling and reigning in this kingdom, Jesus brings blessing to the people, to the land, to everything they see, they touch, they smell, they hear. And in return, they call him blessed. Not just just Israel. All nations call him blessed. Blessed, in verse 18, Be the Lord, the God of Israel. This is important. This king can only be the Lord. This king can only be the God of Israel. This king can only be him because in verse 18 it says what? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. This is a whole psalm about how great this kingdom is when we have the right king in place. When we have a righteous king in place. And then it says, only The Lord, the God of Israel, does wondrous things. Him alone. This is a king who must be the Lord. This is a king who must not just be human, but must be divine. Is not just from this earth, but must be from the heavens. He is a king who fills the earth with his glory. In verse 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. It says, Amen and Amen. Amen. So my question in all this, because I, I've said before, for the earth to flourish, we need a king who is earthly, but from heaven. We need a peacemaking king. We need a redemptive king, and we need a divine king. We need a new king than the ones the world is giving us. Jesus is this new king. So I want you to ask yourselves, will you acknowledge him as the king of the earth? Do you live like he is ruling and reigning? Now to be clear, we do not see the full kingdom of Jesus yet. But in the church we see the beginnings. We see it growing. We see churches across this earth being outposts for this kingdom. Being sanctuaries for this kingdom in a lost and dying world. And as time goes on they win many battles we pray, reaching the lost and dragging them out of where they're at. Will you acknowledge him, though, as king of the earth? Will you acknowledge him as king of his church? Will you acknowledge him as king of your life? Because although he is king of the world and king of the earth, whether you like it or not, you don't have to live like that's true. You don't have to live like that's true whatsoever. So will you acknowledge him as king of your life? And and some of you are are thinking, yes, of course, amen. He's king of my life. But in reality, your version of King Jesus is like a timeshare King Jesus. You have him part of the year. You have him when you need him. You have him when you want him. But you don't have to have him all the time. You can just have him for the spring or the summer the winter, when it gets cold, whatever it may be, but you don't have him as king of your life each and every day. And I know we're not perfect, but many of us, I fear, in this, in our churches in America especially, are far worse off than we would imagine. Unfortunately, even after following him, following him for years, for decades, even, we still might find that our King Jesus fits our calendar, we don't fit our calendar around him. We give him our Sundays, but we may not give him our Monday or our Tuesday or any of the days through Saturday, except maybe sometimes if we decide to come to something on Wednesday night at the church. But if it's not at the building, we don't give it to Jesus. He is King and Lord on Sunday. We, we acknowledge that. Oh, we sing that. We pray that. We amen that. But... On Monday, well, he can just go back on the shelf. But I, we treat it as if when I'm around other Christians, I can be a Christian and Jesus can be king. But when I'm not, there are no stakes and I can just live my life the way I want. Maybe, maybe, maybe we don't even give him our Sundays all the time, we give him some of our Sundays. I don't know if you know this, but they've changed the definition of a regular church attender. It's no longer uh, three days a week, as maybe your parents had it, or, or two days a week, or one day a week, or anything. It's one to two times a month, and two times a month would be a really good regular church attender. So we give him our Sundays sometimes. Jesus gets one or two Sundays a month. Just when we start feeling guilty for missing two or three weeks is when we come back and show up and worship Jesus as king. And I'll say this, if you're sitting there right now, you're thinking, oh my goodness, who can he be talking about? And you're thinking, you know what, I think I know who it is, and it's not yourself, well then you're a lot worse off than you can even imagine, than I can even imagine, I know there have been seasons in my life where I confess that I could sit there and read the book of Proverbs, and instead of thinking about how unwise I am, I'm thinking about how unwise other people are. It's not really good for my sanctification. And so we can sit in a church service and hear a sermon telling us that we're not treating Jesus as king, not only of the earth, but of ourselves, and we can say, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's Tim over there in the corner. Maybe it's Marie over there up in the balcony. When we really ought to stop and pause and say, in what areas of my own life am I not worshiping and serving Jesus as king? And that's the real issue, isn't it? Our own responsibility before Jesus. Now, why talk about this? Why, why, end this, why start a sermon that's all about Jesus being king and how great it's going to be and start talking about how bad we are? Shouldn't this just be a positive message about the kingship of Jesus? Yes, but if we are to have Jesus as our king, we have to acknowledge that the only way he became our king is because he died on a cross for us. And that means we owe him our lives. In fact, we owe him our eternities because the sins he paid for on the cross did not just have a finite date attached to them, but they were against an infinite God. We owe him eternity. Our entire lives, not just because He created us, but because He redeemed us. Because we will have eternal life with God rather than eternal life in hell for what He did. And we, as sinners, each and every one of us, just simply don't live like that most of the time. No matter how good we might be, no matter how many boxes I can check off of my discipleship curriculum no matter how many stickers I get for Sunday school attendance and for bringing my Bible and for witnessing to a friend, no matter how many pins I get for all the good things I've done in the church, I'm saying that for a certain select group of you all who would remember what that is. No matter all of that, we simply just do not live like Jesus is our king most of the time, despite the fact that the only way he became our king, truly and completely, is by giving his very life for us. Why talk about this? Shouldn't this just be a positive message? Yes, but until Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom fully on earth as it is in heaven, the church is the place where Jesus' reign begins. But if you don't show up for it or you come in and fight against it, then you do not have Jesus as king in the way you should. If your posture is to avoid the very place or Jesus' kingdom is reigning on, on earth as it is in heaven, if your posture is to come and fight against the peace that Jesus brings in his church, well, I just hope he doesn't count you as an oppressor and his enemy. Because we know what he does with those, don't we? For our church, not just the earth, but our church to flourish, we need an earthly king from heaven. Let's be very clear just for a moment. A senior pastor is not a king. And if you've hung out in some other denominations, bishops aren't either. Elders are not kings. There's not a board of kings. Jesus is king of his church, and only Jesus. And if at any time you see that a pastor, an elder, an overseer is acting like he's king, pray and confront. And you know what this is important because of the history of Baptist churches not I don't know about particularly ours but I know many churches where this is the case. Let me make this very clear. The person who gives the most money to the church isn't king either. And there's not a group of people who give the most money to a church who are king either. And you know what you might want to throw about how much money you were to make or you give to the church but you can't. You know why? The elders don't know how much money you give to the church nor do we care. And truthfully, this is one of those occasions where with all due respect, you can go take it elsewhere, because Jesus didn't die so that we'll do what the richest person wants. Jesus died to save and redeem lost people, sinners. And it's a very sinful thing to do, right? To try to become king of Jesus' church, in whatever way you manage to do that. We must make our mission to bring God's heavenly kingdom to earth. I fear, I fear, I really do, that too many Christians live in order to get their earthly kingdoms to heaven. I've heard many Christians say, man, I don't know what heaven will be like, but as long as there's fishing there, I'll be happy. And no disrespect to the fishermen, but I'm like, y'all fish all the time now. You, You really want heaven to just be more of you sitting by a lake, not catching anything? I almost want to tell a fishing joke about Baptists, but I won't. But ask me later. The, the, the reality is, it's not about getting our earthly kingdoms to heaven. Some of us live, we store up treasures on earth, maybe to leave, hoping to leave a legacy or an inheritance, or maybe we actually think, maybe we can just take it with us. You can't take it with you. Your mission on this earth, if you are to follow Christ, if you are to live in his kingdom, if you are to acknowledge him as king, is not to get some earthly kingdom you set up here into heaven. It is simply to get God's heavenly kingdom to earth as he taught us to pray, on, may thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I'll tell one quick joke. So there is, there is a man, a rich man, and he, was, he had an investment portfolio, and he had all this stuff, and he was praying to God. By the way, this would never happen, but allow the joke. And he, and he prays, and he says, Lord, I don't want a whole lot, but if you'll let me bring uh, just one bag of possessions to heaven, I would like to do that. And he dies, and he shows up, and he has a bag, and the, the angel at the gate says, what's, what's in the bag? I said, well, well, God said I could bring a bag of stuff. He said, okay, what's in the bag? And he says, well, it's a bunch of gold gold blocks. And he said, why'd you bring pavement here? (laughs) The reality is, in the presence of God, all the gold of this world is fit for nothing but to be trampled underfoot. There is nothing in this earth that is worth losing Jesus Christ. There's nothing in this world that is more fit for our hearts and our minds and our love and our affection and our worship than Jesus as our king? Will you let him rule in your life? Let's pray.